song. Woo! All right, why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody, and tell them good morning. All right, we will not forget. Uh, start on the course. Here we go. One, two, three, four.
attention to the baptism this morning. baptizing two of their kids. This is Justin. Say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Justin, uh, this is Lachlan. Um, actually, let, let me explain how we do things here and, and why a dad is baptizing his kid instead of a reverend. Actually, are you ordained? No. You have been a pastor, though. Um, so let me explain something here. The first line of defense God has for the, for the child growing up in a Christian home is a dad. And uh, God has ordained us as fathers to disciple our kids. And uh, that's not just a uh, metaphorical thing, that's real. And so it's always a privilege at Carpenter's Way when a young man or a young woman, or in this case both, desire to be baptized, having been saved, and let me be clear on that, that uh, after accepting Christ as their Savior, they're already heaven-bound. 
But they want to make a declaration. The Lord encourages us as an ordinance to declare to the world that we're his child, that our life belongs to him, to use any way he sees fit. That's why Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized not to be saved. He didn't need to be saved. Jesus was baptized to say, I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do the will of my Father. And so after salvation, at some point, a young man, a young woman, or an old man, an old woman, whoever, when they give their life to Christ, they, they surrender and they, and they publicly make a statement that I'm going to not live my life for myself. That's what's happening this morning. And as their core discipler, Justin, the father, uh, he has the opportunity not only to disciple them, but to take a stand in front of you and say, hey, I'm going to disciple my kids. So we feel like it's a good thing for a dad to baptize his kid. Your job is to pray for this family. Your job is to celebrate this with them and then support them because you realize that the moment you surrender control of your life to the Lord, Satan starts attacking you deeper and more intensely. So having said all that, I'm going to turn it over to Justin. Okay, well, Lachlan came to me a couple of weeks ago, well, probably about three or four weeks ago, and said, Dad, I think I want to be baptized. And I said, okay. Uh, so we went through, you know, you're already saved and everything and uh, what that means. And I said, so what do you think it means to be baptized? And he pretty much nailed it and told me that uh, uh, pretty much a representation of the old man dying and the new man being raised to life with Christ. So, uh, and the, the great thing is, too, is apparently I was taking too long. He sought out Pastor Mark on his own to ask him, <laughs> uh, when can I be baptized? So he was, he was really, really wanting to be baptized. So you want to say anything, Lachlan? Okay. Well, then, Lachlan, because you have put your faith in Jesus, it is my privilege to baptize you, my brother in Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, when, uh, don't leave just yet. Don't leave, Lachlan. It's not over yet. Now they get to stare at you. Uh, we ask each of the young people or whoever's being baptized who they would like to pray for them. And uh, Lachlan asked that his mother pray for him. So, Casey. Dear God, we just thank you so much for today. And we thank you so much for, for Lachlan and that you allowed him to be a part of our family and that you called him out and that you chose him to be a part of your family as well. And he wanted to share that with the rest of us here today. We know that this is just the beginning of a journey that isn't necessarily an easy one. And um, we just pray that when the world or the enemy or his own flesh tries to pull him away from you, that it would only push him closer and that he would, um, his desire for your truth and to live and walk in your grace and your mercy and um, that his love for you would only deepen and strengthen in the face of trial or temptation. And I just pray for the rest of us as a church and Justin and I as his parents that we would just um, walk with him and support him in the wisdom of your word and your truth, that your word would be a light for our paths so that he would see that and he would want that for himself. And I thank you so much for all that you've done in Lachlan's life and all that you are going to do from here on out. May we all um, just trust you and you alone with all that is to come. Amen. Now, Sydney, you want to introduce your daughter? She's 13. And very funny. She's hilarious. For those of you who do not know Sydney, she's hilarious. Say something funny, Sydney. Hi. <laughs> See, people do that to me all the time, and I hate it, so it was really nice to pass that on. So. Well, Sydney, she has been baptized before when she was, you were six, right? She was six, and she came to me, and came to both of us and said, uh, I think I might want to be 
rebaptized because I really didn't understand what I was doing when the first time I was baptized, and now she understands uh, that it's a, a representation, you know, of uh, death, burial, and resurrection, and that she's wanting to identify with Christ in a public way. So, Sydney, do you have anything you want to say? Um, no. no. Okay. <laughs> Well then, Sydney, because you have professed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it is my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I get the privilege of uh, praying for Sydney, so let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this young lady who's so full of life and uh, brings joy to a room when she walks in. And uh, Lord, you're going to use that for your kingdom. Um, it is uh, easy for us to see th baptism like we had the last three weeks and to sort of just think, oh, that's, that's that Christian thing that people do and not really understand just how deep this goes. Um, this is a young lady, Father, as was just told, that uh, already had made a public profession of her faith through baptism, but said, man, I... I I just didn't understand it. And now I want to make that statement, Father. And I thank you. I thank you for a young lady whose heart is listening to you and wants, wants others and herself to know that she's been bought with a price. And we pray for her. We pray you would bless her. Father, I pray for us as a church that we would pour into, into her life truth. Uh, the world is missing um, just individuals. Uh, Lord, to reach the lost, to encourage those who are your kids, it's not going to be done in large settings like it once was. It's going to be done over the back fence and in classrooms. And Sydney wants to be that, and I ask that you would grant her that. I pray that the Holy Spirit that lives within her would be a loud voice guiding and directing her, and you would bless her. Father, I, I pray for this whole family, Lord Jesus, that they would walk with you, that they would surrender control, and that they would stand out as salt and light in a very dark world. We commit them to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. our mothers and fathers our grandparents neighbors and friends they served in a thousand different ways in places spanning the globe watching waiting and ready at a moment's notice to give what was asked of them so now we pause to express our gratitude and love toward those who served. Each swore a sacred oath to protect, and each bravely stood in our place around the world, all so that we could stand secure in the land of the free. Words like sacrifice, honor, commitment, integrity, bravery, and courage hardly scratch the surface of our gratitude for their service. While our words fail against the enormity of expressing our thanks for all you've done, we still raise our voices and honor you in our hearts, which are filled with the deepest kind of gratitude to all of you 
we pause to say, God bless you. And thank you for your service. Would you let us thank you properly if you served in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or Coast Guards? Would you stand, please? Thank you. You know, I, I left out other services, too, the wax and the waves. Do we have anybody here who served that far back in World War II? Well, wow, we really... I can't say enough thanks and you know one of the things as our country battles whether or not you're patriotic enough or how you lash out at our country or you don't look it is a privilege because of your faithfulness that we can even have that discussion and uh, it means a lot uh, to me as a pastor that we can meet here in relative safety and uh, you know we all know what happened last week and uh, the fact that that is shocking says that it doesn't happen very often and uh, thank you very much for your service. Uh, we have uh, a lot of announcements with the holidays coming. I mean, it's, it's just, at least it's blowing my mind because next, this Operation Christmas Child starts tomorrow and then right after that we have Agape Feast and Thanksgiving next week. So everything's happening really, really fast. So let's take a breath. I do have some announcements to make to those of you who attend here regularly. If you're visiting with us, I wanna greet you and thank you for coming. We are honored that you would be with us this morning. It is our hope and our prayer that having been with us, you fall in love with Jesus. Uh, if you're watching on the internet, thank you for joining us today. We're going to be uh, in Ruth chapter 3 in the Old Testament this morning. You can grab a Bible and join us there. We'll be there in a, in a little bit. But I do want to take a few minutes to, to highlight a few things that are upcoming and really, really important for you to know. And, and we do this a couple Sundays a year just to, just to really get everybody on the same page. The first thing that I want to mention is our big family celebration, our annual family Thanksgiving time together is our agape feast and that happens every year the tuesday before thanksgiving information is in the worship guide about all this stuff but the agape feast is tuesday november 21st so it's not this coming tuesday it's a week from tuesday and it begins at uh, 6 30 and basically you bring two side dishes to share and it is a huge it's, it's just a glutton feast. We engage in grace and the mercy of God as we eat together in this room. Uh, and we will turn this next Sunday. We'll clear the worship center out, and we'll turn this into a dining hall. We'll put tables up, and it'll be great. But uh, we would encourage you to put that on your calendar for, for November 21st at 6.30 at night. Uh, and plan on joining us. It is not a long evening. We have a meal, and then uh, then we have a, a short time, a couple songs, and I, I share a devotion, and, and it's going to be a great time. So plan on joining us uh, again a week from Tuesday. Uh, but before that, we have our major Christmas uh, ministry that's going on. It starts tomorrow, actually, and it is our Operation Christmas Child. Uh, Operation Christmas Child is run by Samaritan's Purse, for those of you who don't know, and they basically collect gifts in the United in, in Western countries, uh, little Christmas gifts, the boxes, and then uh, and then they send them global in churches that they have been working and training the pastors for, and they draw the families in, they give them the Christmas gifts, and then after that they invite them to a an 11-week program called the Greatest Journey, where the gospel is presented and discipleship done. Uh, this is all about the gospel being presented. And then after that, it's about teaching kids about the journey of walking with God through your life. I think it's one of the greatest uh, 
evangelistic and discipleship things that I've ever experienced in my life. And I have had, as, as most of you know, I've had the privilege of going to a distribution in Panama, and it was life-changing to see what they do with these kids, to, to see the training of the pastors. A lot of the pastors, this is the first formal training they get on how to disciple. So it is, a, it is an incredible ministry, uh, and it begins tomorrow, and there's two ways that you can be involved. First and foremost, uh, get a box and fill it. Uh, you need to pay special attention to what can't go because of uh, customs in different countries, because of terrorism. They've gotten a lot more strict. Like, for instance, you can't. we just found out yesterday after buying several bottles of toothpaste, you can't send toothpaste. So uh, if you have not done, or if you have, make sure you get on the website or as you leave, or even in your worship guide, there's an insert that explains about uh, about the gifts, what to put in a box, and you can bring them uh, to, up to the office this week or up to the church, and uh, we will make sure that those get to Dallas where they go through, customs goes through, and then they go international. But that is one way that you can be involved. Another way you can be involved is signing up to volunteer. A lot of our time slots are full, and we thank you for that. Uh, but our biggest need is going to be next Monday. That's a week from tomorrow because we're going to this week, they will bring a couple semi-trailers, and we will fill those Monday. Uh, this next week, what we do is we take the boxes and crate them. Other churches and organizations and districts and cities are going to bring crates to us. Uh, we crate the ones that we get from Angelina County, and then we put them in the trailer next Monday. We'll do some on Saturday, but mostly Monday, and we need people with strong backs. If you have a weak back and a strong mind, we need you the rest of the times. Uh, if you'll sit at the table and register, and, and, and we, would, we, can, we would appreciate your help. You, as you're leaving, make sure you go to that table. You can pick up, pick up a shoebox if you need one or two or five, or you can sign up or you can do both to serve. But uh, we need your assistance in that. Uh, and again, thank you for those of you who signed up. It's almost completely full, but we can always use more on Monday um, because of trailer loading. Uh, I also want to, well, we're talking about Christmas. Mark, why don't you come up and make your announcement, and then I'll make a couple more about today. And then, Good morning. It's hard to believe, but it's back to that time of year, that one time of year where we show our love and support for our staff, both pastors and uh, support staff, by taking up a love offering for Christmas. So we'll be doing that over the next few weeks. Um, really, this is the only tangible thing that we do throughout the year that shows that love and support to our staff. So December the 10th will be the last Sunday that we'll be co collecting those funds, and then we'll distribute them equally among the staff. So as you feel led, take the love offering envelope in your um, worship guide and put that in the plate. Thank you. All right, if I can have our ushers come forward to prepare for our offering at this time, uh, I'm going to make a couple more business announcements that need to be had. Number one is we have an annual business meeting tonight. Uh, the ballot for tonight's meeting is in your worship guide. You can take a chance and peruse that. Uh, we will open questions, uh, opportunity to ask questions specifically about the finances or the budget for next year, if you have any. Uh, as far as the nominees for finance team, mission investment, and elder, uh, those need to be asked beforehand. Uh, and, and the reason for that is we're not here to shame people. If you have concerns or questions, we've been throwing it out there for the last two weeks uh, intentionally. Uh, and you can ask me after the service or one of the elders. Their names are on the back, and we would love to entertain those questions if you have any. But again, tonight, if you'd like, we can answer questions about the, uh, the budget. The last thing I want to mention is you'll notice an orange insert about security team. Um, all right, so let's talk about security for just a second. I'm not going to go into what we do because we don't want to tell people what we do, but we've had security here for about five years, and it's good. 
Uh, Carpenter's Way, our location as well as our ministry, we have, we've had things going on during our service. Probably once every six months something happens, and our security team has been phenomenal. About a year ago, as I had shared with you, and maybe it's been two years now, we shared with you that the elders had decided we'd bring a, a, a uniformed officer in on Sundays and uh, during our worship times just so that we have somebody to contact if something gets out of hand, and uh, uh, we will continue that. Um, that being the case, we're trying to expand security down to uh, our student department a little more effectively. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, I hate to be sexist on this, but I'm going to go ahead. Guys, we need your help on this. We had uh, a meeting a couple weeks ago. We have over 30 guys involved right now. And it isn't just guys. Ladies, you can, you can volunteer in this area. If, it, you know, sometimes in the church, people think that the only thing that really is needed is singing, uh, drum playing. <laughs> um, <laughs> or preaching or Sunday school teaching, that's simply not true. There's a lot of stuff for every one of those. There's a bunch of others that make that possible. And uh, security's become a big deal. And uh, I, I, I know that uh, there are some who are alarmed. There are some that are not here today because they don't want to gather in large groups. And I get that. But I want you to know that we have it covered. Um, and that's intentional. Uh, we as shepherds feel like uh, one of our main responsibility is to make it possible not to be distracted. That's what we do. And part of that is not just feeding you and making sure that our teachers are on message, but also it is making sure that you're safe when you're, when you're in this place. And that's why we do what we do. Our, our thing for the past five or six years, as Jeff and I and Alicia have talked through these things, we want to be a little over the top with security. We would rather have you be critical of us beforehand, thinking nothing will ever happen, than after something happens going, why, didn't, why weren't you prepared for that? And uh, some of you have heard that we had an incident a few weeks ago, uh, and it was handled. Um, why? Why didn't you hear about it in the church? Because you didn't need to hear about it in the church. It was taken care of. And uh, we will continue to do that. And God will continue to protect us. And uh, I want to remind you, and I know that this may shock some of you, but let, let me be clear that it is a tra although it's a tragic tragedy that 26 of our family were killed last Sunday in a church here in Texas, I want to assure you that God will replace them with 100,000 more men and women of God to complete the task. This is, not a, this is not lost on God. Um, we do not live in fear because our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not living. We feel like it is sometimes, but it's not. Our hope is found in the gospel and the promise that our inheritance where, uh, is placed and locked where moth and rust does not destroy. That is our hope. It's not in this life. And uh, I want to remind you that last week, as 26 of our brothers and sisters were killed worshiping our Lord, I want to remind you that last year, hundreds and thousands of us were killed in North Korea and China and Iran, put to death simply for believing Jesus Christ. It's not okay there either. It's not okay. But it is our calling. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And I just want to remind you that it is our job to protect ourselves. The church has always, some, somehow, <clears throat> one more thing and then I promise I'm done. In the 1800s, with evangelism, both in Europe and the United States, church ceased to be what she was called to be, which is a discipling mechanism, and began to be an evangelism mechanism. In other words, we began to evaluate our service based upon how many people walked an aisle. When the calling of our gathering is actually to equip the church, unsaved people are welcome here, but they are not the focus of our gathering. But by making them the focus of our gathering, we don't know who they are. You know that little fish symbol that we throw around on the back of our car? Do you guys know why that was the symbol of Christianity and not the cross? Because back in Ephesus, they didn't want people knowing they were Christians. 
So they would put the fish on the outside of businesses to say, if you are one of the followers or a fisher of men, you can come here for safety. The church has always been a safe place, theoretically, for believers. And maybe through this time, God will raise us up to be what we were really called to be in the first place, where we encourage each other. Evangelism can be done over the back fence. It can be done over the register. It can be done as a cop pulls you over and gives you a ticket. It can be done everywhere. And, uh, and I, I want to make it clear again. Not everybody is welcome here. Only those who will abide by the guidelines established from the elders and the constitution of this church, okay? Not everybody is welcome in church. And, and to be truthful, in my 33 years of ministry, it's usually believers that are asked to leave, not unbelievers. This is not about what you believe or what your sexual orientation is. This is about whether or not you will submit to the authority of the organization of the church. And that is unapologetically my stand. And I've talked with several pastors about it this week. And one of the problems is if your focus is growing, you're in trouble right now. Our focus is growing spiritually and growth. And I want to tell you that as people come in here, because we have lots of visitors, and uh, visitors, thanks for putting up with me for a minute. But as people come in, get to know them. Sit down next to them. Talk with them. Welcome them. This is our home. They are our guests. You want to protect us, be a part of the solution. Actually minister to people that you don't recognize. So move out of your comfort zone. Move across the room and sit with somebody. Or if you know somebody that's, that's here and looking for a church, reach out to them. Put your arm around them. Welcome them. That's what we do. That is the family of God. While remembering that our, the, central, the central focus of our gathering are the equipping and edification of the church. It's interesting that the calling of a pastor is to equip, to correct, to train in righteousness, and even rebuke. It isn't evangelism. That's not what we do. We study the scriptures together so that you're prepared to get out there and share Christ with folks. So all that being said, we're fine. Take heart. You can die of a gunshot wound just like you can cancer. And it's all in God's hands. It really is. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, don't go to sleep because it's scary out there. Those of us who do, it's okay. God's got this, right? Daddy's got this. And I assure you out of the ashes of that First Baptist Church will grow a statement that is already, did you hear the pastor talk who lost his 14-year-old daughter? Did you hear him talk about the Lord? I don't like this. It's horrible, but I do know God is good. Is that not the truth? God is good. And we will go home. We will go home at the right time. So, okay? If you have questions, and we can even ask them tonight at the business meeting if you have them. We don't want to go into details. If you want to be part of the security solution, sign on that sheet, and we'll get you involved. Uh, but uh, that's what we're doing. We're just fine. Uh, nothing's changed but our comfort, and it will continue to go that way, and God, God will take care of us. So let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that we can gather this morning and we can hear from you and we can get into your word and we can focus on you, Father. There's so much bad news. We can't even watch football anymore with wonder, without being political. It's, uh, there, there really isn't a safe place out there, but there is a safe place in here. We are reminded, Father, that our safe place isn't even the local church. It's the God of the local church. It's our daddy. And I thank you, daddy, for loving us. Thank you for being reminding us this morning that you aren't just some, some benevolent deity who's trying to save people who are on their way to hell, but you are a dad who wants to adopt your kids. You sent Jesus. You killed your son to redeem us. We thank you for that. Thank you for being a martyr for your father's plan. 
And now, O oh Lord, I pray that you would focus us on you, that we would rejoice in our salvation, that you would take our minds and put it on you. As we give financially, Father, we'll be careful to use those to glorify you and, and spend wisely. I pray you would bless those who give. Uh, bless those who don't give. Uh, bless those who are here this morning that don't know you. May today be the day of their salvation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. 
For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. Oh, you are 
You're dismissed for your programming. Why don't you head on out there, and we're going to get into Ruth. And I'm going to start by uh, bringing us up to, up to speed. I'm going to start by reading the story so those who haven't been with us know where we're at. Ruth chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of a barley harvest. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up stalks of grain left behind by anyone who was kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in the field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While he was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. And the Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, Who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, She's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain from the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they're harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here, help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in sour wine. So she sat with the harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her, and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that, that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where'd you work? May the Lord bless the one who has helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, the man I worked with today, his name is Boaz. Well, may the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing kindness to us as well as your dead husband. This man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family's redeemers. 
And I want to point out that that is a term. That's, that's a noun. It's a name. It's, a, it's not just a kind thing that she's saying. Verse 21. Then Ruth said, What's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the woman in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. I just, I just want to point out that that's what honor looks like. That's what graciousness looks like. I mean, God, through the prophet, told the Jews this in Micah 6.8, something we talked about last week. The Lord has told you, speaking to the Jews, what is good, and this is what the Lord requires of you. Do what's right, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And Boaz, in this story, exemplify, exemplifies what it looks like to do justly, to love mercy, and you certainly get the sense that Boaz was a godly man. In, in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter, 1, or chapter 2, verse 12, we're instructed similarly. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. That's our instruction. Although Boaz hasn't been the focus of our study up to this point, I want you to take note of him this morning for how he lived out his life and his faith certainly is instructive to us in how we live out our lives in this sinful and, and albeit religious time in history. If you think that this is a post-religious era in history, you haven't been paying attention. This is an incredibly religious time. They might be wrong, but they are religious. And I want to remind you, that we are not a religious people. We are the children of the Most High God. That's different. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I ask you this morning to take the things that we have already learned from this wonderful, this wonderful historical book and, uh, and let us build on top of them the things that you want us to learn this morning. Uh, I ask that as we work through chapter 3 together that we will make some observations and, and be changed by your Holy Spirit, Father. I pray, Lord, that we would not just be a people who are satisfied with going to be with you when we die, but we would be a people who desire to live out kingdom values in this life before our death. May we be gracious. May we be humble. May we do justly and may we humbly walk with you every day. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I just want to jump right into our story this morning in chapter 3, and I want to walk through this chapter together and make some observations to you in the time that we have. Ruth chapter 3 verse 1 begins, One day, so this is the very next part of the story, One day... Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you, take a bath, put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Uh, and Mary Kay is born. <laughs> this, is, uh, 
this is an interesting story, and, I, and, I, and we're going to get there in a, in a few moments, but I want to begin by saying that with our culture, you can kind of see some seduction going on. I want you to understand, and you'll understand what I'm saying in a few minutes, there's no seduction going on. That's not what it means when she, in a few moments, we're going to get to where she says, cover me with your, uh, your blanket. You're going to find that that's a technical term, and there's some real legal stuff going on here, but I want to begin by making sure that you understand that this is not just a romantic story. This is a story of redemption. So let's jump in. If you're not paying close attention over recent months, you might miss something significant that just happened in these first four verses. I want to remind you that when this story started, and I've heard from several of you whose hero is Naomi, and you don't like how, how we've treated her in the historical context, but I want you to notice that there's a marked change in how Mara is acting here. This woman, if you remember, back in Ruth chapter 1, gave instructions to Ruth on what to do. Remember? Let me read it for you. Return to your parents' homes. She's speaking to her two daughters-in-law. For I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, I, uh, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. You hear it? And again, they wept together, and Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, this is when it gets serious. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. So in case you haven't been paying attention, Naomi has, she's mad at God. She's mad at God. She will go on later in chapter 1 to actually explain when she finally returns to Bethlehem and the people greet her. Remember what she says? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara for my life is, is a mess. And God allowed me to leave with much, but I'm returning with nothing. Do you remember him saying that? that, is, that was a, that's a huge statement because I want you to remind you that when she left, when she left Bethlehem to move to Moab where the enemies of God lived, I want to remind you that what she had, yes, was a husband and two sons, but no relationship with God. They were abandoning their post by leaving Bethlehem in a time they should have been crying out to God for food. But it was easier for them to run and save their rear ends than stay and deal with God. Yet even returning, she saw herself as leaving full because she was satisfied with food and family and not fellowship with God. And she returns, and she says, I have nothing, when in reality, she has the opportunity again to get things right with the Lord. It is so easy for religious people to forget that this is about a relationship. That's why I love that song we just sang, because it reminds us of God's mercy even when we don't deserve it. It reminds us that God has been so good to us even when we don't deserve it. I don't know, we don't know exactly how much time has passed from chapter 1 to Ruth chapter 3 that I read you today's text, but one thing is for sure. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, has gone from believing that life in Moab with its false gods, she thought that would be better for Ruth and Orpah. Now she's starting to believe that God's provision and protection in Bethlehem was what was best for Ruth. I want, to remind, I want to go back and say that one more time. Then no matter how much you like Naomi, you cannot argue against the fact that she thought that life, she actually says it, that life would be 
better for Ruth and Orpah back in Moab with their gods because she actually says you need to return to your people and your gods. She believed when she's returning to Bethlehem that life would be better for Ruth with false gods and, and people who are the enemy of God than in Bethlehem. But that's changed. Now Ruth says, seems to believe that, or Naomi, what's best for Ruth is the protection of God and his people under his laws. It appears to me that having come back to the promised land, declaring herself to Mara and being very angry at God, at some point, transformation has begun to take place where she begins to believe that what's best for her migrant daughter and herself is to live under Jewish law and protection of their God. It is amazing how we go from angry with God to realizing that even if he doesn't do things our way, his ways are still best. He still has things under control. So Naomi, in the text I just read you, tells Ruth that it's time to take a shower, put on nice clothes, wear perfume, put a little makeup on, I'm adding that, because Boaz, the guy whose field she just happens to find herself in, is actually in line to redeem Naomi is telling Ruth to let Boaz see beyond, beyond the poor foreign gleaning girl and see the woman. Uh, sidebar, okay? And this is dangerous. I actually gathered the women of my staff and asked permission to say this this morning. For those of you wishing to get married, there's a, star, a story of an old farmer. And uh, he's ending the, his life and he realizes that he has no heirs for the farm. And so he begins to make preparations to sell his property. And the old barns, he begins painting. He doesn't fix them up, he just paints them. They are what they are. And his wife comes out one day and says, Honey, why are you painting these old broken down barns? And he said, Because they look more attractive to a purchaser. There is definitely time to put some makeup on. I want to say something. As you trust God, as you walk with God, it's okay to look attractive. This is Ruth. It's okay. Naomi knows how the game is played, and you know how the game is played. Sometimes, and we've been talking about this now for a few weeks, God's people like to feel better because they're martyrs because God hasn't raised somebody up out of the dust of the ground to fall in love with you. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about how at the edge of the Red Sea, Egypt had surrounded the Jews and the Red Sea is on the other side and the people are panicking and they run to Moses. And they tell Moses, you know, you brought us out here to die. And Moses says, no, God's going to take care of us. And then he cries out to God and he says, you've brought us out here to die. And he's praying. And remember what God said to him. Stop praying. Keep walking. It's okay to keep walking. And I don't talk very much to single folks, but I'm going to now. There are a lot of tools at your disposal to find a godly husband. Godly. Use them. If eHarmony is a way that God, a tool that God's going to use, get on eHarmony. Stop being so stinking proud. You want to get married, it's okay to find a husband. It's okay. For whatever reason you want to get married. God may stop you. He may not give you that. But I just want to tell you that there's nothing wrong with wanting it. There's lots of reasons for it, and you see it here. And just to ride through this and see this as a romantic story without implications for you, both boys and girls wanting to seek marriage, 
And I want to tell you that my prayer for you is that the church is a place you can find a spouse. So for those of you looking for a spouse, single folks, look first here. Look first here. It's okay. And for those of us who are married, don't mock that. Well, he's 48 and desperate. No better place to be than 48 and desperate and looking for God's will. I want parents to know this. You are not just giving your teenager a great high school experience. You are raising the future of the church. Make your daughters marryable, not dateable. It's different. It is not hard to make a young lady dateable. Shorten her skirt, thicken the makeup, paint the barn twice as much as it needs painted. But to make her marryable will take every moment of every day of your life. Make her marryable. I have been very open with you about wanting my daughter to marry a godly man. And I encourage young men in this church to pursue her through me. <laughs> Having said that, I do want to say that not just at Carpenter's Way, but in general, there are not that many godly young men worthy of my daughter. And not because I'm a jealous dad. I want her married. It will be cheaper for me. I want her to find a godly husband. I don't care if he's a vet, not a military vet, a guy who works with animals, an insurance salesman, or even if he owns McDonald's. I don't care. I just want him to walk with God. Don't care about his color. Don't care about his upbringing. want him to walk with God. You may not be able to change your socioeconomic status, but you can change your focus of your life. And when we talk about you walking with God, men or moms, do it because the church needs you to. The church needs you to. One of the things that I appreciate about Jeff and Mark Dubose's ministry, they're not a couple, it's Jeff Bonin and Mark Dubose. <laughs> Got to be careful today. <laughs> Can we just delete that last 30 seconds? That would be really, really great. One of the things that I appreciate about something they've pivoted to in recent years, and it's a tragedy that we've had to, but it is true, and that is teaching our kids not just to know the Lord, but actually what it means to live wisely with the Lord. And, and, and I, I, I seem to grow up at a time, if I remember correctly, and, and you're going to have to put up with my recollection because it maybe have been better than this, but if I remember correctly, walking with God as a young man meant putting aside all of the game of dating, and I think that's crazy. I'm going to offend some of you here. You can call it courting, you can call it whatever, but at the end of the day, it's still dating. It's okay to make yourself attractive. As long as you're not selling what you're not willing to give away. Ladies, whatever you wear, whatever you're advertising, that's what he thinks he's going to get. Look in the mirror before you go out. Men, look for a godly woman more than a beautiful woman. Beautiful women are an inch deep at times, and there's a million of them. And she may be a trophy on your shelf, but she will be a thorn in your side if she doesn't love Jesus. Nothing wrong with being beautiful. I've struggled with it my whole life.
I won't be using that line again. <laughs> but you, you know what I'm talking about here. I, I know you do. Put all the offense away, put all the sexism away, put a, the offense of our culture, but the reality is that God created us not independent, but interdependent. And not just so we have somebody to hang out with, but so that we can have somebody to do godly life with. We need that. God wants that for you unless he doesn't want it for you. Some of you are called to singleness, but there's no, nothing wrong with pushing the envelope. And what I mean by that is you don't know that you've been called to singleness till you're dead. So seek a mate. And it's okay to make yourself attractive as long as you don't start advertising something that you shouldn't have to advertise to find a mate. But in this story that everybody loves and it's so romantic, I wanted to stop and say, look, Naomi, who seems to be lining up with the God thing again, actually encourages her daughter to put perfume on, take a bath, because she stunk from the fields. But I'm a farming girl. I want a man who loves my smell. Even Naomi knows that's ridiculous. <laughs> put some perfume on, babe, because it smells on the threshing floor. And go pursue your Redeemer. It's in there, right? And if it's good enough for Ruth... And Esther, it's good enough for you. Nothing wrong, wrong with wanting to be married. I want you to understand that as much as it feels purely like a social or romantic place, for, this, for a single woman to find herself a husband, I want you to, re, and even, even the manipulation, we'll call it that, that's going on here, it's not really if you understand the culture and context. What's happening here in the story is actually part of the Jewish law that God established with Moses on Mount Sinai that is written in Leviticus 25. And instead of reading it all for you because it's long, I just want to read for you Warren Wiersbe's explanation of it because it's very good. The time had come for Ruth to present her claims to Boaz and give him the opportunity to be her kinsman redeemer. The Old Testament law provided in, in Leviticus 25 that a kinsman could buy back an estate could buy back an estate which had been lost through poverty. This kept the land in possession of the proper people. The kinsman, of course, had to be willing and able to redeem. Ruth followed the custom of the day when she presented her case this night to Boaz. If he was to redeem her deceased husband's estate, he must also marry Ruth the widow. You'll find more about that in next week's text. In chapter 4, but what you need to understand is this is not a sex play. It's not a seduction play. This is a legal play. And I was thinking this week as, as, I, as I read this, I wonder if God had Ruth in mind when he wrote that law. You see, one of the things that many of us struggle with is, is the thought that it's possible that God is so specific in his plan for our lives, so perfect and complete in his sovereignty, that he would actually establish Leviticus 29 for one young lady by the name of Ruth, who was a widow. Is it possible that God's plan for her is so important? And the answer is yes. It could be for hundreds and thousands of young Jewish girls, but it was enough that one Jewish girl's plan, his plan for her, would need a law that would allow for this to take place. Now, at any time, Boaz could reject it, but I want you to understand that the Scriptures teach that God's plan for your life is so specific. Remember that, that little tapestry verse? We are the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus. And he prepared us beforehand to do these things. There's a thing that God has called you to do, whether you know it or not. You may not know it. All Ruth wants here is to have somebody take care of her. That's all she wants. 
All Rahab wanted was to live and her family live when Jericho's walls were falling down. All uh, Elimelech was to feed his family. That's all these people want is their experience to improve, their comfort, their provision, to be able to take care of it. What they don't realize, and I hope you're seeing Ruth, is underneath the surface, God is at work. He's working. And why? Because a man named Boaz needs to marry a woman named Ruth because God has foreordained that that couple is going to be the grandparents of, J of David, king of Israel. And David is going to be the great king, seven kings, uh, grandfathers away from Jesus Christ. And this happens to all take place in what city? Bethlehem. In order for Ruth to be, <clears throat> in order for David to take the throne of Israel, to fulfill the prophecy, he had to be born in Bethlehem. So a generation ahead, two generations ahead, God has a whore in Jericho actually marry into Israel and end up becoming the mother of a guy named Boaz who ends up being in Bethlehem, having land, and leading this family to birth the king of Israel who would be the foreshadowing of the king of kings of Israel. This is all part of God's plan. God isn't in heaven going, how are we going to work this out? Oh, that's why the Trinity exists, so they can figure it out. That's not how this works. He's got it figured out beforehand. How do I know? Because it says it all over the place. We were chosen in him before the world was even formed. He chose to send Jesus to redeem us before the world is formed. In Genesis chapter 4, right after man, the, a man falls and separates himself from God, God already in chapter 3 has prophesied that through the line of Eve, there would be a redeemer. This is all part of God's plan. And God is not in heaven going, what just happened in South Texas in that church? 26 believers are killed. And I had 26 different plans for them. Now I'm going to have to find 35 people to fix the 26 who can't do it. Their plan was done last Sunday night. Their task completed. Well, you sound like you don't care. I care deeply. I care more for us than them, though, because they are finished. They're at rest. They're with the king. They're in glory. They're sitting on the throne. We now have to fulfill our task until we, too, are taken out. At some point, we're going to have to believe that we're not just Christians living in East Texas. We are the called children of God who have been given a task and God is moving the chess pieces around for us to participate. And really the question is, are you going to be Jonah or are you going to be Stephen? We know his task is going to be difficult. The question is, are we going to do it willfully like Stephen or are we going to do it poutly? That's not a word, I just made that up. Are we going to feel sorry for pouty-ish? Thank you, Pam. Uh, are we going to do it angrily like Naomi? The question isn't whether or not Naomi was going to end back in Bethlehem. It just... The question was, am I going to have to send a, a whale to swallow you? Because she had to be back in Bethlehem. She had to take Ruth to Bethlehem. Because Ruth had to marry a dude in Bethlehem so that they could have a son who would be the father of David. It had to happen. Well, how do you know? Because the Bible prophesies it. And you, my friends, are just as important to God's plan as Ruth and Boaz and Rahab and David I'm pushing the envelope but the truth is your plan to God is just as important as Jesus's plan he just had a different task but you don't realize how important you are to the kingdom too often we try to talk you into realizing how important it is that you walk with him I just want you to know you're just important to him whether you walk with him or not he loves you how can I say that because while you were yet a sinner Christ died for you 
He didn't wait till you figured out you needed him to die. He did it while you were rebelling, while you were pushing back, while Naomi is pouting. God's going, just, just talk. Go ahead. Little Jewish angry old woman. Go ahead. Call yourself Mara. In the meantime, I'm sending you back to Bethlehem. You didn't send me. I sent myself. Really? Really, Mara? Do you really believe that? I do. Because God, and we've all been there. God is good, but he's not safe. And we better get preachers to start telling the truth. He's not safe. He didn't come to fulfill your plans. He created you and redeemed you to fill his plans. Why? Because that pleases him. Check out Ephesians chapter 1. We have no idea how truly in control our daddy is. And we can rest in him and his foreknowledge and his plan. Now, whether we knew, choose to do it with joy or not to do it with joy is really up to us. So Naomi is now directing Ruth, who had been used by God to show Naomi through her gleaning that God's laws and his provisions do work. Now, Naomi was instructing Ruth to use God's laws to her benefit. Go get a shower, put on some perfume, and go get that man. That was Naomi's instructions, right? Verse, chapter 3, verse 5. Ruth's response. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. Get the pot warm. I'm cold. I added that. That was for the bath. That was a little... It didn't work as well as the beautiful thing. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. Verse 7. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirit. <laughs> For those of you who believe that drinking is a sin, I want you to know that that was grape juice and it hadn't had time to ferment. <laughs> How stupid are we sometimes? He's a little bit happy. In Hebrew, good spirits means a little buzz. So he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and he went to sleep, which is what a little buzzed people do. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. About midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and he turned over, and he was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Oh no, I didn't drink that much, is what he said. It's not written here, but I added that. Okay, I know that I've offended about half of you. Please give on your way out, but, but do come back. I love this next question. Who are you? He asked. <laughs> oh, that was a bad day. Who are you? I'm your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. I'm making jokes because in our culture this sounds sordid, but it, it isn't sordid. This was not a private room. This was a, a public threshing floor. There are others there. How do I know that? Because Naomi instructs her to find where he is sleeping. He's not the only man in the room. Uh, not only that, in case you're not clear, if you wonder what it was like in Israel at this point from a moral perspective, do you know why a rich man would sleep with his grain? To protect it, because that's your gold. And he couldn't even trust his foreman to do it. So he's sleeping with his grain because he's ready to protect it. So he isn't drunk as a skunk, okay? He's just celebrating that the harvest is over. He's sitting down there, and all of a sudden, he goes to sleep, and he wakes up, and there, there is this, this woman with him. There's not, nothing sexual going on. It was a commoner for, him, for a harvester to sleep with his grain to protect it. So Naomi and Ruth knew where to find him. 
And she's simply asking Boaz to redeem her. To be clear, what she is asking when she asked him to cover her was that he legally cover her. By the way, the Hebrew word here is, anybody guess? Atonement. That was the English word somebody said cover. Hebrew word is atonement. I want you to atone for me. Atone for her under Jewish law. What she's asking, literally, for him to do is to atone or redeem her heritage. She wants him to redeem the property that was lost from her family when her father-in-law and mother-in-law ran from God and Bethlehem to Moab. You remember that whole year of Jubilee thing that we talk about a lot, that nobody really knows what it is? The reason every seven years a Jewish family could get back, their debt was forgiven and they could get back what was rightfully theirs that they had maybe borrowed on, was because God's intention was for every family that was Jewish to be provided for under the Mosaic law. And so every family all the way back there in the 12 tribes was given a piece of property. That's how it worked. I want you to remember that, that, that the nation of Israel was not a democracy, it was a theocracy. I own this land, I'm giving it to you. Here are your 12 tribes, and under the 12 tribes, I want you to give this much land to each family. It's specific in the law, it tells them. Well, what happens is as people sin or as people leave, they go into debt or they lose their property. And God even made laws that would take care of their sinfulness. And here's an example of that. The only reason, the only reason that Ruth doesn't have inheritance in this kingdom or own property or have a field she can harvest on her own is because her mommy and daddy decided to run from God instead of to God. Does that make sense? Well, God knowing that and being sovereign created a law so that people who run from him, if they come back, can actually get back what God had given them in the first place. It's called security. Some of you who wonder about eternal security for the child of God, God has always kept his promises to us, even when we're unfaithful. That's what Romans says. And you see it here. This is, this is God's law to give people an opportunity to get back what they have thrown away in order that for them to keep the gifts God has given them, because God doesn't revoke his gifts. It's an incredible story. And she is asking him to redeem her heritage, which is filled with people running from God. Not only that, but she's asking Boaz to redeem her responsibilities. In other words, take me, but you're going to get my mother-in-law. <laughs> That's a whole different message. <laughs> she also is asking him to redeem her, pro her poverty and her present circumstances. So up to now, she's asking him to redeem all the mess of her family and the responsibilities of that mess. She can't abandon her mother. She said she wouldn't. If he won't take Naomi, he's not going to get Ruth. Now she's asking him to redeem her present poverty, her present circumstances, and ultimately he's asking her to redeem his future as well. She is asking him to redeem her future. She replied, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. This is what it looks like to seek redemption. Seeking redemption is not looking for a piece of a puzzle to be solved. I don't want to go to hell. It's realizing that every part of your life is a mess and only Jehovah God or Boaz can fix it. This is what it looks like to seek a redeemer. Take my past. Take my present. Own my future. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess in your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's redemption. This is redemption. And of course, Boaz, according to the law, can respond any way he wants see that in next week's text. He could have said, no, you're annoying to me. More accurately, because he seems like a nice guy, he could have said, I would like to redeem you, but sweetheart, 
while my family worked our rear ends off on the field that you're taking stuff from, while we were faithful here, your mom and dad were living in our enemy's camp, and you're part of that. Now, I like you well enough. You're pretty and everything, and you work really hard, so I'm going to show you mercy, but I am not redeeming your sorry butt because you're part of that. Wait, there's a story in the New Testament that sounds just like that. What's that story? Do you not hear the prodigal son? You see, the funny thing about the prodigal son is we concentrate on the son who ran away. Actually, the story is called the parable of two sons. And he's telling it to whom? Anybody remember? It's very important. Context matters. He's not telling it to a bunch of sinners who feel unloved. He's telling it to the religious leaders who want nothing to do with people who are trying to repent. And the stories actually emphasizes the other son who's been working his faithful fanny in the fields. That was three F's. He's actually telling his sons who's griping, I'm not going in for that boy's party because I've been working this field while he was partying in the city and the father's going, what are you doing? Everything I own is yours. You have been faithful, but why are you holding this against your brother? He was dead and now he's alive. This is that story. This is that story. And it would have been easy for Boaz to say, I want nothing to do with you because of your family. Your dad-in-law you seem like a nice enough person, but that guy was a no good so-and-so and he left us on a lurch and took his servants with him and his boys and we had to not only cover our own field, but his field. And I'll tell you what, not only am I not giving it back, you can't work my field anymore. Does that sound like us? Sounds like modern Christianity. Do what's justly. Gotta do what's justly. Make sure you avenge your right. Don't let them, don't go to stores that don't say Merry Christmas. I actually think you should be in stores that don't say Merry Christmas because they can take the green and the red, but they can't take Jesus out of it if we're there. Men and women. Never gonna, I'm not, I don't wanna get politically careful. I, I, it may be good for you to raise your kid in a Christian school or homeschool them, but I'm going to warn you on something. You better be sure that it's God calling them to do that. If we take all of us out of there, there's nothing left for them out there. There's no hope. Our job is not to be safe and clean. Our job is to be a difference. We are to live out the kingdom values in a non-kingdom place. That's our task. You're supposed to get dirtied up. That's why we wash each other's feet. You have been redeemed. Our job is to be missional out there. We're not supposed to go to Christian transmission specialists. You should go to the guy who uses God's name in vain to have your, Christian, uh, your transmission worked on. Most of the time, it's going to be cheaper anyway. But the truth is, we have begun to believe that we exist in a culture for that culture. And our job is to come out from among them and don't get dirtied up. And I'm here to tell you, your job is to get dirtied up. My son had a young lady that he was dating a couple years ago. And uh, she started explaining what kind of life she wanted. You know? They had lived uh, very close to, well, to one of Disney's parks and uh, had never been because they have gay day. And they started talking about that. And Zach, who's passionate for the lost, said, we really have to talk about what our future looks like because I not only want to be at the park, I want to be there on gay day doing magic. And the truth is I want my kids in the public school no matter how dirty because my kids are missionaries. You realize that's why we're here, right? We're not here to be healthy and safe and rich. No matter what Ted Cruz's dad says, he's wrong. We are here to be treated like Jesus was treated. And then we go home. And we've lost that. If we're Boaz, we're going, I don't think much of your parents. 
They left us on a lurch. But that wasn't Boaz's attitude. In fact, in verse 10, he says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. Can, can I just say something about schooling? You, I just hit the third rail of the church. That's why my kids went to public school. We prayed. We talked. We sought God. If you want to homeschool your kids, and that's what God's called you to do, there are plenty of ways for them to be involved in ministry. But my warning is this. Bill Gothard was a heretic. He was a liar. Your goal in homeschooling should not be to protect your kids from the world. It should be to give them a good education. Now find a way to get them back in the world. Because what they have to offer, they're looking for. Get it? The best educations in town are probably Christian. I get it. Send your kids to Christian school. But do not protect them from the dirt of the world or they will have no... What are those things called? Why do, what, you wash your hands with antibiotic soap, right? And the doctors are a little bit worried about that, right? Because you don't have any immunity. immunity. You want to teach your kids, uh, and I, I'm, I'm going off because I don't want people to misunderstand. I don't care where your kids are educated. I do care that they're dirty. We had an opportunity a few years ago to fly to San Diego, and we took our kids. And we decided that we'd try to save some money and, and stay in a hotel that was a park and fly. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> And I think it was, was it the day we came, left or were leaving? We were coming back. And uh, we spent a, a, a night, and the next morning we heard screaming outside of our hotel room, and there was a lady walking, running through the parking lot naked, screaming. Uh, she was obviously strung out, throwing up. And uh, I said, look, you see a little weed makes you feel good. A lot of weed ends up there. The problem, with, the problem with sin is it feels good. That's the problem with sin. And we're so proud we think we can handle it. All of us. And before you know it, you're trapped. I know your marriage is rough. I know your kids are rough. I know you're tired. I know all those things, but... Doing things to make yourself feel good will only destroy you. Run from those things. Don't cover your kids' eyes. Make them look. It will upset them. You want them to see the whole story. Seriously. Make them look. I'm trying to protect my kids. You're going to protect them right into a lie. Now it's up to you. I've spoken what I feel on that, and I, I, I think it's great that your kids are homeschooled. I think it's fine that they go to a Christian school. I'm, you understand? And I, I'm not trying to offend you or tell you how to raise your kids. Actually, I am. Make them missionaries, not monks. Man, I'm doing a lot of those, those like word things now. The last few weeks, what's that called? Alliteration. Well, it's one of my skills. Look at Boaz's response with all the options he had, though. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family lo loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after younger men, who are, whether they're rich or poor. He's aware of himself. He's looked in the water. I'm wrinkly. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary for everyone in town who knows you're a virtuous woman. But while it's true, I am one of your family's redeemers. There is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he's willing to redeem you, very 
Well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until the morning. This is what it looks like to do justly, to love mercy. This is what it looks like to be a redeemer of people. Verse 14. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning. But she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Not because this was immoral, but because he had a plan that involved a conversation. Okay? Those of you who know how the story goes, if you don't, next week we'll talk about it. But he's not going, don't let anybody know you asked me to cover you. I'm not going to violate you. That's not what happened here. What happened here is he's got a plan and it involves a conversation where the other guy doesn't know what's being offered. Okay? More on that next week. No one must know that the woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. Then he returned to the town. That's called an engagement ring. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me six scoops of barley and an, an engagement ring and said, don't go back, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter. Until we hear what happens, the man won't rest until he has settled things today. And as it was for the redemption dance of Ruth and Boaz, so too it was with you and I, remember? Ephesians chapter 2 says this, that once we were dead because of our disobedience and our many sins, we used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the heart of those who refuse to obey God. And all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our nature. By our very nature, we were under God's wrath or anger, just like everyone else. Do you remember when you realized that you were stuck without someone or something else to help you, help you get out of it? Do you remember when you realized that there was no way to deal with your sin on your own and you actually started looking for a redeemer from your spiritual poverty? Donna Buster and I have been talking a lot about spiritual poverty lately. She's been pushing my thinking on that, and I'm beginning to realize we don't talk about it enough. This woman, Ruth, was in, in, in financial poverty. That was the primary problem. We have a spiritual poverty that our Redeemer can only solve. And while we're trying to get over ourselves, a Redeemer that we didn't even know very well. I mean, we knew of him. We knew about Jesus, but we didn't know him personally. He did what Boaz did in Ruth 2.14. He said, come over here. Let me feed you stuff. Remember in back chapter 2, he gives her grain and he gives her sour wine and lets her dip her, her bread in there and she's eating and, and feasting? That's what God does to you before you're saved. Come worship with me. Let me show you my universe. Let me provide for you. The New Testament teaches that rain falls on the wicked just like the righteous. So you go and you kind of look up in the sky and the world does that and they see the stars and they go, man, the creator of this, whoever he or she may be, is awesome. So they go and you went. Not sure if you would like him or not, but you went and, you, and he began speaking to you gently, loving And eventually you realized that he wasn't just some nice old Santa Claus-like deity, but he wanted a relationship with you. In fact, you learned he came into the world at that first Christmas time. God with us. He wrote himself into history for 33 years, walking like we walk, with the same pains that we have, the same struggles, living in the culture that we live. And he lived among us because he wanted a relationship with us so bad. And eventually, like Ruth, at some point you realize this was more than a nice man or a good teacher. This is what a redeemer looked like. So you cautiously walk toward him and you humbly ask the same question Ruth did in Ruth chapter 3. Will you cover me? Will you really atone for my sin? Will you redeem me? 
from all the things I've done in the past and the responsibility and the damage my family has done? Will you redeem me from my responsibilities now? I need help with my kids, God. And my husband's an idiot. And I don't like my boss. My pastor's pretty good, though. All those things. We cry out to God for those. I know we're not thinking about it because too often it's just about hell, but I'm telling you, it's about everything. And we ask God to redeem our future from all its twists and turns in this life and in the next. You see, that's what it looks like to seek redemption. And to you, it says, as Boaz and Naomi said, I'll do what needs to be done. Have patience. And so today we sit here in 2017 waiting for him to complete our redemption. I thought I was already saved. You are. You already are saved and you are in the process of being saved if you live, live God's life, life, God, life God's way. But one day you will be redeemed completely. You will be married to the King of Kings and the old order of things will be done and there will never be another Christian killed in a church service or out in the byways of life. There will never be a missionary who loses their head. There will never be another fight or church split again because our daddy will finally be before us, have adopted us and cuddle us. Our redemption is nigh, my friends. It is nigh. And like Ruth, we must wait patiently for him and never lose heart. No matter what the media thinks of us, no matter what the media says about our God, we have to patiently wait Him because He's in process right now of completing our redemption. For those of you who have yet to be redeemed, Jesus, our Redeemer, invites you today with these words from Matthew 11. Look at these words with me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Rest. For those of you who have run to Jesus to redeem you, He says today, as He did with Ruth, just be patient. I'm doing what needs to be done. Trust him. Sit at his feet. Eat his provisions. Wait. Be still. For he's the perfect redeemer. And we will see him soon enough. Let's close in prayer. Father, help us be patient. And if there is someone today who has not been redeemed, or accepted your offer to, opportunity, your offer to redeem them, may today be the day of their redemption. And for those of us who have accepted it, give us patience and courage and trust. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. I went late. Bible study is going to start in five minutes. Thanks for being here this morning. God bless you. Five o'clock tonight we have a business meeting. Operation Christmas Child, please sign up to help.